Support for NPR comes from ADP. Say you're in HR and a solar flare adds an extra hour to each day. How would this impact business? ADP designs forward-thinking solutions to help your business take on the next anything. ADP, always designing for people. Cheers is one of the most celebrated TV sitcoms of all time. Set in a Boston bar, the show survived cast changes as it won major awards, turned its stars into household names, and even spawned a classic spin-off. Cheers ended its run 30 years ago this spring. 30 years. So we thought this would be a good time to answer your questions about the series. I'm Linda Holmes. And I'm Stephen Thompson. Today we are talking about Cheers on Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Squarespace. Kickstart or update written content on any website, product description, or email with Squarespace AI, generating instant, personalized results that know and show your brand identity. Explain what your site is about, choose your tone, and enter what you need to get short or long-form text. No matter the placement, Squarespace AI makes it easier to go live, stand out, and succeed online. Use code HAPPYHOUR to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Joining Linda and me today is our co-host, Aisha Harris. Hey, Aisha. Norm! Hey. Hey there. Hey there, y'all. We shout your name whenever you enter the room. So Cheers aired from 1982 to 1993, but it's never really ended. It has aired in syndication for decades. As of this taping, it's streaming on Hulu, Peacock, and Paramount+, and several of its characters continued on for another 11 years thanks to the success of Frasier. Many members of the Cheers cast became major stars, including Ted Danson as bar owner and retired Red Sox pitcher Sam Malone, Rhea Perlman played acerbic waitress Carla Tortelli, John Ratzenberger played know-it-all Cliff Clavin, and George Went played the Cheers bar's greatest customer, Norm Peterson. Cheers was famous for its cast changes. For the first five seasons, Shelley Long played Diane Chambers, a prim waitress who becomes Sam's unlikely love interest. But when Long left the show, Cheers continued to be popular. Kirstie Alley joined the cast in season six. She played Rebecca Howe, who brought her own neuroses and subplots to the mix. After its first three seasons, the show had to replace a beloved bartender, Sam's mentor, Coach Ernie Pantuso, after the sudden death of Nicholas Colasanto. So the show brought in the naive Woody Boyd, played by a young Woody Harrelson. Starting in season three, we meet the psychiatrist Frazier Crane, played by Kelsey Grammer. And in season four, we meet his wife Lilith Sternan, played by the wonderful B.B. Newirth. Though Cheers had very low ratings at first, it became a blockbuster success on NBC, airing 275 episodes in 11 seasons. It was nominated for an astounding 117 Emmy Awards, winning 28 of them. The show was created by James Burroughs and Glenn and Les Charles. Now, Aisha, one reason we wanted to talk about Cheers is that you watched the show for the first time fairly recently. So I'm going to start with you. Give us your overall impressions of Cheers. Yes, I was a latecomer to Cheers and actually took me a few years to get through all 11 seasons, <laughs> but not because I didn't enjoy the show and didn't find it bingeable. Um, it is a show that is very much of its time, but also timeless. And I think that's why it continues to be found on best sitcoms of all time lists or best sitcom episodes or best characters. There are so many ways in which this show feels like a throwback to periods before the time it was airing. There's a lot of 
I Love Lucy vibes, both with the screwball and also with its kind of uh, misogynistic tone occasionally, which we will definitely get into later on, um, and the way it views women and and treats women on the show. Um, but at the same time, there's just so many great zingers. And if you sit with the show long enough, you will understand these characters who never actually really change much. Different stages of life occur. People get married. People have babies. But overall, these characters are pretty much who they are as soon as they walk through that Cheers bar door. They're pretty much the same by the end of the season. And I think that's kind of part of the appeal is that you pretty much always know what you're going to get. And what you get is really smart dialogue, really great chemistry between all the performers and just people you want to hang out with, even if they are in many ways kind of <laughs> insufferable. <laughs> so I, you know what? I, I liked it. I, I think it's it's really, really fun. And I understand now why people loved this show and why people continue to love this show with reservations. I'm glad that you had the experience of kind of joining this show without that veneer of nostalgia. I had the thought, like, am I enjoying this because I have always enjoyed this? You know, like, this is great, right? So I'm glad to have, uh, I'm actually glad to have this little bit of validation. <laughs> Cheers, turns out, mm. good show. How about you, Linda? Yeah, I love Cheers. I think my appreciation for Cheers does overcome its retrograde gender politics in some ways. I think my appreciation for it stems from the fact that they wrote good jokes. They wrote just mm -hmm. a lot of good jokes. And that is the kind of comedy that Cheers is. As Aisha mentioned, this is not a comedy where people deeply change and grow a whole lot. You know, there are relationships deep in a bit here and there, but it's not a show that is about that. It is a show that is about stasis to a great degree. As an example of what I'm talking about, Cheers opens every episode with a little cold open, which is just a little joke about the bar. And I want to play a little bit of the cold open from the very first episode where a teenager walks into the bar and gives Sam a fake ID. Ah, military ID. First Sergeant Walter Keller, born 1944. That makes you 38. Must have fought in Vietnam. Oh, yeah. yeah. What was it like? It's gross. Yeah, that's what they say. War is gross. This is the first, you know, 30 seconds to a minute of yeah. this show. It is such a good bit. It is such a funny line. And one of the things I love about the pilot is that particularly in the first couple of episodes, Sam and Diane don't really hate each other. They have an antagonism toward each other, but they also smile at each other a lot. They laugh at each other a lot. There is a warmth to it. It's not a strictly like meanness driven thing. There's a lot of kind of back and forth teasing and they're just funny. If you'll admit that you are carrying a little torch for me. <laughs> I'll admit that I'm carrying a little one for you. Well, I am carrying a little torch for you. Well, I'm not carrying one for you. This is a show that I mostly just appreciate because I think it's funny. And many comedies that I've loved over the years, no, I've loved for character reasons. I will say they have the ability to pull out a few surprisingly resonant emotional moments, particularly around Sam, who is a retired professional athlete and also a recovering alcoholic. And there are a couple of moments when Sam is kind of very close to 
kind of losing his sobriety, his kind of hold on the bar, his hold on his life. And those actually can be really affecting, but mostly it's the jokes. Yeah, and I'm I'm actually really glad you mentioned the poignancy of this show because yes, this is a joke delivery vehicle. It is one of the most reliable joke delivery vehicles in the history of television. It's one reason it gets talked about all the time as one of the greatest sitcoms of all time. For 11 years and 275 episodes, that is an extraordinary number of jokes. But I do think the character work on this show and the character development on this show, even if even if there's a lot of stasis involved, there is this deepening and richening of these characters as we get to know them more. I love this show, and I was really happy to go back and rewatch the show, and every once in a while you kind of go, ooh, Ooh, boy, that didn't age well. But there's still so many laughs. Yeah, I'd say that happens probably once an episode for me where I'm like, ooh, <laughs> at least once an episode. One of the things that I find so interesting about it is the way that Sam, especially, like you talk about that poignancy. And while so much of him is like horn dog, total jerk in many ways when it comes to women, a lot of the show also has to deal with him trying to wrestle with aging and his concern with his life passing him by and the choices he made, even though towards the end he doesn't really change that much, to see him kind of struggle over the various episodes and various seasons where suddenly he wants to have a baby because he's worried about his mortality and he decides, dumbest idea ever, but to have it with Rebecca or try to have one with Rebecca. Like, <laughs> what, what is happening? Or even when he's, like, concerned about his hair and all, like, all of those things are very, in a way, yes, they're vain. Yes, he's kind of adult. But at the same time, they deal with these very real and natural concerns that everyone, especially straight, hyper-masculine men, deal with. And I think it's really interesting to watch the show through that lens and kind of appreciate the ways it tackles those things, even if sometimes it's not always in the way you would hope that they would do it today, you know? Yeah. I mean, the entire driver of the Sam and Diane relationship kind of finally getting underway at the end of the first season is Sam's brother coming to town and Sam is incredibly insecure. The sort of romantic climax of that first season comes out of his insecurity and his realization that he cares about her, which comes from feeling like his brother outdoes him in every area that he cares about. And the other thing that I always note when I talk to people about Cheers is like, keep in mind, they got those two people, quote unquote, together at the end of the first Mm -hmm. season. So when people say like, oh, you know, the show is ruined once you put the people together, because that's just all very silly. They put these people together at the end of the first season. The rest of it was very much back and forth as opposed to will they, won't they? And it was fine. So do not drag cheers into your (laughs) weird conversations about why people should stay apart forever. Um, Because I actually think, I think they're very funny as a couple. I think during the time when they're trying to coexist as these really, really different people who are super, super hot for each other and yet really don't make any sense as a couple. I actually think a lot of those episodes are really funny. All right. So we asked listeners to send us questions about this show and we got some great ones. Let's hear the first one. Hi, it's Reese Colchin from Davidson, North Carolina. Can any of you think of a show that benefited from such serendipity. I don't want to say good luck, but as I think of Cheers, I think of a show that could have absolutely fallen apart after the untimely death of Nicholas Colasanto. And then Woody Harrelson steps in. They bring in Kelsey Grammer, 
to play Fraser Crane, and boy, does he explode. And then when Shelley Long decides she wants a movie career, she leaves. They bring in Kirstie Alley. I can't think of another show whose longevity was tied to uh, just a murderous row of talent that got brought in, and I'm wondering if you feel the same. Thanks. Yeah, that's a great question, and I, I think we're kind of talking about different eras of the show, right? And this show was so adaptable. This show mapped over my childhood pretty effectively. And and Nicholas Colasanto died when I was like 13. And I felt that loss really, really, really deeply. And the show reacted to that, A, with poignancy, B, still finding a way to fit in jokes, and C, by bringing in Woody Harrelson as a different kind of naive character. And then found a new avenue into more and more jokes. When Shelley Long left, they brought in Kirstie Alley. And I think, you know, we'll talk about the character of Rebecca and some of, and how the character of Rebecca kind of suffers from some of those retrograde views on gender that kind of seep into the show. But Kirstie Alley was a very, very gifted comic actress and really kind of helped bring in a little bit of what, Linda, I think you used the word madcap. You know, that ability to create episodes that were sometimes just pure farce. But I don't know, is there a conventional wisdom about what is the peak of Cheers? And like, do you have a favorite era of Cheers where you think this show is at its best when blank, Aisha, I'll start with you. Yeah, I mean, I think that it is really, really lucky that this show is able to just replace great actors with other great actors and have them be not quite the inverse of who those former characters were, the sort of analog, but really add something new to the show. But for me, if I had to think about my favorite era or the episodes that I most want to go back to, it's usually the Diane era. Even though towards the end, I actually think that their will they or won't they get married question gets dragged out and and her character is kind of reduced to something kind of horrid in a way. I still think that those are the best seasons. And when Rebecca comes in, say what you will about Kirstie Alley and her political leanings that we learned about later in life. I do not like Rebecca Howe, but it's not because of Kirstie Alley. It's, I think it's because of the way she's written. I think she starts off as the sort of the very typical 80s working woman, you know, I'm shoulder pads and I'm like all about business. And then quickly she she kind of devolves into just a straight sort of like a farce in a way that I think is not not necessarily a bad thing, but I feel like the writers didn't like her. Mm -hmm. (laughs) She's an unabashed gold digger and that's fine. But then she also like just keeps getting degraded and humiliated in the worst ways. Mm -hmm. Just like, ooh, this is cringy. So for me, it's definitely the Diane seasons. And, And as much as I love Coach, I also do really think that Woody brings a new energy into the show. So it's sad that Coach wasn't there. But then I also think that like the years where Woody and Diane overlapped were some of my favorite seasons. Yeah, I think my absolute favorite is the first three seasons when Coach was there. I just have a very coach and his kind of always wanting people to throw baseballs at him. And like, (laughs) I just think he is so funny. And I do prefer the Diane seasons to the Rebecca seasons, other than maybe when Rebecca was very new and they were doing that kind of 80s working woman thing, they were really putting Sam in a different position where rather than having a woman to whom he felt intellectually like he had trouble sort of being good enough for Diane, but he felt like he was sort of more confident than she was. 
And I think that when Rebecca came in, she was more of a challenge to him in terms of power because she was literally the boss, right, as opposed to Diane who worked for him. I did think that was a, an interesting and, and different dynamic. But as Aisha said, they so quickly turned her into a joke and a, and a character who was mostly just humiliated over and over again that that character sort of fell apart for me. So I would definitely say the Diane seasons. I loved when Sam and Diane were a couple, was I invested in the idea that by the very end of the show, I wanted them to like be together forever? <laughs> no, no, they make no sense together <laughs> no. at all. But I always enjoyed, you know, seeing them together. Yeah, they're not Jim and Pam. <laughs> <laughs> There's not a sense right. that these two people obviously belong together. No, they don't belong together at all. When I think of my favorite episodes of this show... I was really surprised by how often they were in the Rebecca seasons. Yeah. And, like, I think about that bit where Sam tries to do sports commentaries on the <laughs> local TV station and eventually winds up rapping. So get your scores from a guy like me who knows what it's like to have a groin injury. That bit is still so funny. I still do that, like, groin injury. <laughs> but you watch that clip, and that's Rebecca era. I was thinking, you know, my, my family watches a lot of Jeopardy. And so I went back, like, oh, I got to watch the episode where Cliff is on Jeopardy. It's yeah. so, so funny. They they deploy Alex Trebek so well in that episode. That's, like, the eighth season of that show. And so it's very easy to think of, like, this is the golden era of this show where all the best stuff happens. But it's really not. The show does evolve. I agree that the writers don't seem to like Rebecca as much as I would like them to. And I think that that builds in some major flaws into those later seasons. But man, there is still some just absolutely solid gold comedy writing and some of the most classic bits. Yeah. All right, let's hear the next question. Hi, my name is Nancy West, and I am calling from Carlisle, Massachusetts. I feel as if it is held up as a vaunted example from the golden age of sitcoms, but it is basically a show about sexual harassment in the workplace. Even back in the clueless 80s, with their very different standards of acceptable behavior and interaction between men and women, a decade before Anita Hill and eons before the Me Too movement, I remember being so disturbed by Sam Malone's relentless predatory behavior toward his female co-workers and the fact that no one seemed bothered by it. How do we look at this theme through a contemporary lens? And can we agree that maybe it wasn't as great a show as we claimed it was back then? What an interesting point. Yeah. I mean, here's the thing. I can't argue with anything that Nancy is saying in terms of the fact that this is not acceptable workplace behavior, right? I have given a lot of thought to why this doesn't get under my skin in the same way that a lot of other shows of the same or even later eras get under my skin. And I think part of it is that the show always tried very hard to present the relationship between Sam and Diane as mutual, right? The, the flirtation as mutual. Please do not misunderstand me. That does not mean that it is okay to flirt with or make comments about the people who work for you. I am not saying that at all. I'm saying I think what made it go down a little bit easier for me at the time was that and what probably makes it go down a little easier for me now is probably that just on a gut level. But listen, Sam is in a bunch of different ways a completely inappropriate person. He's an inappropriate boss. He's also inappropriate to women who come into the bar. He hits on every woman who comes into the bar. He is a very 
bad example of how you would want an actual person to behave. And I think you have seized on the complexity of trying to deal in an honest way with things that you have a great amount of of nostalgic attachment to. You know, if somebody made this show now, I would probably not watch it and I would probably be pretty mortified by it. A lot of it is the power of of nostalgia and and how much you can get away with if you're writing good jokes and I think in terms of does it mean it's not as good of a show as quote unquote as we claimed it was back then? I think it depends on what you mean by a good show. If you mean, did it have a lot of really problematic portrayals of how people behave in a workplace and a place of business? Absolutely. Yes, it did. I cannot argue with anything that you said. Yeah, I mean, I'm coming at this as a millennial who has no sense of nostalgia for this. Like, I was obviously aware of it as a kid and growing up, but it was never a show that I actually watched. So watching it through that lens without feeling any sort of attachment to these characters for the first time. Yeah, it was kind of difficult. And I I did find myself turning to my partner a lot of times and we're both looking at each other like, what? Like, this is not okay. And I think that there is something to be said for how the show occasionally pushes back or like makes it very plain that Sam is indeed a vapid horn dog. Actually, let's just play a clip from season seven where Sam hits on a psychiatrist who walks into the bar. And so they go out on a date, but then after the date, he asks her, you know, like, what do you really think of me? Were you psychoanalyzing me the whole time? And she tells him this. You're an aging Lothario who uses sex to cover up massive insecurity, a fear of true intimacy, fear of a relationship, and quite frankly, not only a fear of dying, but a fear of living, too. You're one sick cowpoke. (laughs) Because of who he is and because of the way the show is, Sam almost always gets the girl even if they are not interested to begin with or they claim they're not interested. At the end of it, she still wants to sleep with him. And I think that's just such a pervasive moment of that time. And even the way that all of the other members of the, the bar are always cheering him on and are like living vicariously through his exploits. I mean, I take it seriously as, you know, this is ingrained in the culture and a lot of this was allowed to pass by because these are actual feelings and, and ideals that people held. But at the same time, I also recognize that this show is about people who, for the most part, are pretty terrible. And I think that Seinfeld gets a lot of credit for being a show about characters who you despise. But this show also, like, for the most part, they're all very mean to each other. They're very troubled to each other. But I I think you have to watch this show and you have to just engage with that. And then your mileage may vary, basically. I was just about (laughs) to use the phrase, your mileage may vary. Because absolutely, Cheers is a cultural artifact. We did an episode of this show where we talked about friends and the process of going back and revisiting friends through the lens of so many jokes about gay panic. I completely hear those criticisms. And I mean, this show was walking in a very, very delicate tightrope. This is a show about a bar in which several of the characters, and not just Sam Malone, are clearly dealing with alcoholism in ways that the show does not really touch. This show is extensively about sexual harassment, which is not necessarily given the name sexual harassment. This is a show that is set during the AIDS crisis with a very, very, very promiscuous lead character and AIDS and STIs are not mentioned. Whether you are able to kind of push past that and enjoy it for the jokes is kind of up to each person. Your mileage may vary, as Aisha said. I think what for me makes it worth checking out is to at least like understand how what sitcoms were in that era because I think it's kind of the prototype for everything that came 
after it, including Seinfeld and, you know, Friends and obviously Mary Tyler Moore and other shows like Taxi, which the creators were involved with previously, those were also in the similar vein. But when you think about the fact that this show lasted 11 seasons, I feel as though ignoring it completely and and not at least going back and trying to dip into it a little bit is kind of like wanting to understand film history and and not watching something like, I don't know, Do the Right Thing or, or anything on the sight and sound <laughs> list. Like, I, I think you have to... I don't want to force anyone to watch something they don't want to watch. But I do think it's kind of important in just a sense of understanding where the culture was or where a lot of white mainstream culture was and how it kind of laid the foundation for the sitcoms we know today. Yeah, I mean, it was a huge deal, right? It's always a mistake to say we used to have a monoculture and everyone watched Cheers. That is not accurate. But it was hugely popular. And the end of it was this gigantic cultural event. So I think it's always valuable to kind of dip in and see what something was. But I will say, you know, check out a handful of episodes if you're interested in it. Watch a few. And when you start to feel like it's not worth it, dip back out. Yep. There's no need to be a completist about Cheers. Like, yeah, it's right. one thing to say, if you're going to watch The Sopranos, you should really watch the whole thing. Right. It's another thing to say, if you're going to watch Cheers, you got to watch <laughs> 16 versions of the episode where they go to war with Gary's Old Town Tavern and all that stuff. Like, <laughs> yes. just watch it until you feel like you get it. And if you're not enjoying it, stop watching <laughs> If you do find that you're enjoying it and kind of interested in mainlining all of it, it does manage to plant little comedic seeds in your brain. And little things will trigger bits from that show in ways that have given me joy for 40 years. I ultimately really, really, really appreciate the show. I totally understand and share reservations with it. But if you're able to kind of push past it, you're just going to laugh at so many jokes. Yeah. And one thing that I also want to say just before we get out of here is I don't think that you can leave a conversation about this show without acknowledging that it is from the era of iconic TV theme songs. Uh And it has not only an iconic TV theme song, but an iconic TV theme song that speaks to its actual essence and heart as a show about lonely people finding (laughs) community. Quite possibly the only TV theme song that you will hear at a bar. (laughs) Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name. We want to know what you think about Cheers. Find us at Facebook.com slash PCHH and on Twitter at PCHH. That brings us to the end of our show. Linda Holmes, Aisha Harris, thanks so much to both of you for being here. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you for knowing my name. (laughs) This episode was produced by Mike Katzeff and edited by Jessica Reedy. Thank you for listening to Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. I'm Stephen Thompson, and we will see you all right back here next time. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Delta Airlines. When you think about it, half the trips the world takes are trips home. Home. What we all eventually long to get back to, no matter what took us away to begin with. Those at Delta know that, because all 100,000 of them are, above all, travelers just like you. It's why they try to make you feel at home long before you even get there. This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with its original podcast on investing. Each week, you'll get thoughtful, in-depth analysis of both the stock and the bond markets. Listen today and subscribe at schwab.com slash oninvesting or wherever you get your podcasts.
Do you ever wish you could get your stories in three hours rather than three minutes? Or maybe you're sick of doom scrolling, getting your news in bits and pieces. That is where Embedded comes in. We bring you documentary series that will change the way you think about things. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Mm-hmm.